Well, just as we have taken a break from our regular Old and New Testament readings today for our installation service, so also are we taking a break from our series through Ecclesiastes as we uh, come to our time uh, of God speaking through the sermon. Uh, today, we are going to be looking at a special passage in John chapter 13, uh, the passage telling us about Jesus washing the disciples' feet. Our focus today is going to be on verses 12 to 17, but so that we get the context, I am going to begin the reading in verse 1. John chapter 13, beginning to read in verse 1, and reading, uh, I'll take the reading through verse 20. But our focus, again, is going to be on John chapter 13, verses 12 through 17. It's on page 900 of our cart Bibles. Before we read this word together, please join me in a word of prayer as we seek God's blessing uh, on our study together. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, our God, we thank you for our Savior who was willing to become a servant for the sake of gathering his people to himself. We thank you for his humility and his love poured out in the upper room and poured out in Calvary. We thank you for the power of his resurrection and the spirit whom he now pours out into the hearts of his people. We thank you, Lord, for making us yours. We pray that you would speak to us now through your word. Move us by that same Holy Spirit to give us faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and life by his name. We pray that you would help us to see something of our Savior and to love you and follow you and trust you more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here now God's word as we find it. In John chapter 13, beginning to read in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I'm doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, 
Truly I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I'm not speaking of all of you. I know whom I've chosen. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. I'm telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. Whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Thus far, the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add a blessing as we study it together today. I uh, grew up in a home, probably like many of you, a home where showers were the thing that you did after work was done rather than before you went to work. Uh, My father drove a gas tanker. That meant that when he came home from his job, he smelled like 87 octane. His clothes smelled like 87 octane. My wife's father came came home from his job, excuse me, with cement dust in his hair and sweat on his brow. And it's the legacy of the blue-collar father. But the work that you do to provide for your family often leaves you tired and sweaty and sometimes filthy. So you shower after work instead of before. And there's nothing that uh, a little soap and a quick rinse can't fix. You know, even after a shower and a shave, you can still always tell a blue-collar dad from a white-collar dad. All you have to do is look at his hands. If you grew up, as I did, around farmers and laborers and millwrights and mechanics, you know the hands that belong to men who earn their living with their bodies instead of their minds. And if you imagine what kind of hands our Savior had, I wonder if you imagine the hands of a white-collar Savior or a blue-collar Savior. We open the scriptures and we find Jesus doing all sorts of things. We see him teaching and debating and healing and feeding. And I wonder if in our mind's eyes we imagine those healing hands just about as soft as most of the pastor's hands that you know. Or did Jesus' hands bear the calluses and the blisters that broadcast the work he had come to do with his body? The scripture doesn't give us a description of Jesus' hands, and in a sense, we don't really need one. But here, in the night before Jesus was sacrificed, John does show us that our Lord was not ashamed to get his hands dirty serving his church. He also shows us that Christ wants us as his people, to be willing to do the same. In these verses, Jesus says, there is an example for us. An example for all of us to follow of love and humility and hard-working service. And this applies to every person in the church. And we want to see the way that it applies to each one of us, but especially today, as we prepare for the ordination and installation of men at Redeemer, We want to see the way this applies to those that God has called to lead his church. So we have two points today for our passage. The first point that we need to see is that Christ came to creation wearing work clothes. Christ came to creation wearing work clothes. On Monday morning, I get to play pretend that I'm also a blue-collar father. 
Uh, that's the day that my business casual stays in the closet and I put on my old jeans with the tears and the paint stains and I, I do some of the work that needs to be done around the house. And perhaps the most important thing that we can see in John chapter 13, before we ever get to the example that, that Jesus says that we ought to follow, the most important thing that we need to see is that Jesus came with a job to do. Jesus didn't come to earth to be pampered like a prince, but he came to do the work that needed to be done. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we read in, in verse 4 that knowing that he was about to return to the Father, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he, he wrapped it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And you who know this passage know it well enough to know that this was the most self-effacing service that Jesus could have rendered in the first century. Over the last 2,000 years, this, this idea of foot washing in the Christian consciousness has become something of a ceremony. It's become something that we do sometimes at the end of a weekend retreat, and we do it in dim lights with, with hushed voices and with a sense of reverence and awe before this symbolized humility of one believer to another. It's become a ceremony for us. In other words, it's become something very far removed from the first century reality. Originally, washing feet was not a ceremony. It was a necessity. It was a matter of personal hygiene, the kind of thing that most people did for themselves, and it meant that to wash the feet of another person was intensely demeaning. It was actively humiliating to the point that social custom dictated that not even a Jewish servant could be compelled to wash the feet of another Jew. It was set aside, relegated only to the Gentile dogs who served in the lowest possible class of slaves among the Israelite people. And yet here is Jesus willingly doing what his disciples could not have imagined that he would stoop so low to do. He does it of his own volition. Here is Jesus, their Lord and Master, voluntarily taking on the role of a servant. And it is that voluntary condescension that is essential to the lesson that Jesus is teaching his disciples in the upper room. You know, in the 24 hours that would follow this incident, the disciples would watch Jesus forced to a Roman cross. They would watch his outer garments taken from him. They would watch them raffled off and away by his executioners. They would watch as his lifeless body was wrapped in the linen shrouds of death. They would see him placed into the tomb and separated from the land of the living so that his body could be forgotten in the darkness. And when they saw it, they would be tempted to think that it was all just happening to him. That Jesus was caught up against his will in some plot that he couldn't restrain. They would be tempted to think that his sacrifice was an uncontrollable tragedy rather than a voluntary offering. And so now, before that happened, when he already knew that his hour had come to return to the Father, now to prepare them for what they are about to witness, 
we read that Jesus rose from supper and laid aside his outer garment. He did it of his own accord. So that they could see what he had come to do. That's why when Peter objected, when Jesus was going around that table and he came to Simon Peter and Peter asked that question, do you wash my feet? Jesus said, you don't understand now, but you'll understand later. And he doesn't mean you'll understand by the time we get to verse 12, by the way. You can read the rest of the upper room discourse and see that all of these men were none the wiser even after Jesus explained the foot washing. They didn't get it any better after this incident uh, than they did before the incident. It wasn't then that they understood. No, they'll understand later, but they'll understand after they see it fulfilled, after the resurrection. They'll understand after Jesus' word is fulfilled that he spoke in John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. Jesus said, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. They'll understand later, he says. After they understand why they have to be washed to have a share with him, they'll understand. After they see the servant's work that Christ came to accomplish on Calvary, they'll understand what he was doing with that basin and that towel, washing the filth from their feet. Only later will they understand that the Creator stooped low to become a servant. Only later will they understand that the Savior served His church because He loved her. That's why John tells us in the beginning of this passage, the first verse, that having loved His own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. That's a retrospective statement. It's John looking back, inspired by the Holy Spirit, reflecting as a man who at the time was just as clueless as all the rest of them sitting around the table at what was going on. John didn't understand it any better than Peter did, any better than Philip or Thomas or Judas, whose feet were also washed. John didn't get it at the time, but later he looked back and he remembered and he understood the servant's towel and that dusty water were symbols of love personified. You know, when Jesus went around the table washing sinners' feet, he didn't do it the way that we might be tempted to. He went around and washed their feet without pretense, without manipulation, without thinking about what brownie points he was scoring up for himself with these men. He did it, he did it without any sort of backward attempt to draw attention to the greatness of his humility like we sometimes are tempted to do. Now, Christ served his own servants out of love. Love that united him to the love of his Father. John 3 tells us that God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son. John 13 is showing us that the Son so loved the world that he was willing to stoop low. And Philippians reminds us that the Son so loved his church that he emptied himself into the form of a servant that he humbled himself unto a death on the cross. You see, it was love that made every service that Jesus offered worth the salvation that he had come to accomplish. 
And looking back on that fact later, John knew. And he understood. And now you do too. Jesus came to creation wearing work clothes. He came with a task to complete. A job that could only be accomplished by the Savior who became a servant. He came and was willing to submit to the will of the Father in order to bear the sins of his people, in order to carry them away and give them life and forgiveness that they could never gain by themselves. It was the highest form of service in the lowest form of humility, motivated by the greatest form of love. And if you were to explain to someone else what did it look like for Jesus to to serve his church, to love his church. It looked like a master with a towel tied around his waist. It looked like the creator with his hands outstretched on a cross. It looked like the Savior who laid down his life just like he laid aside his outer garment in order to take it up again, in order to resume his place as our Lord and our Master our teacher and our savior. Now Christ loved his church enough to become a servant. And now Christ makes all his servants servants of one another. This is our second point. Really the main point of this passage. That Christ makes all his servants servants of one another. So when he resumed his place at the seat of honor, he said to them, do you understand? Do you get it now? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. But if I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Christ makes this a command. Here's something we ought to do. Here's a work we should do one for another. We have to serve and follow our Savior's example. It's true that our service to one another doesn't do the same thing that Jesus' service did for us. Jesus is more than our example. He is our substitute. And by our humble service, by our love to one another, we can never make ourselves or anyone else right in the sight of God. Our service doesn't do the same thing that Jesus' service did. But what we can do by our service, by our humility and our kindness and our acts of charity, one believer to another, is to display the love of Christ that has been poured into our hearts by the power of his indwelling spirit. That's what's at stake here. That's why Jesus calls us to follow out this command so that the world would see the love of Christ on display. And he says, you should do as I've done for you. His service has become our example. That means that in love, we must serve one another. Now you're aware that in some Christian traditions, Christ's command to wash feet has been taken literally. So it finds its way into those quiet ceremonies that we were talking about a a little while ago. But actually, I think Jesus is giving us here something far more necessary than another ceremony, something far more demanding than another ceremony. In verse 15, Jesus is calling us not just to do what he did, but to do as he did, and there's a big distinction between those two. 
The difference between doing what Jesus did and doing as Jesus did comes down to a question of cost. What did it cost Jesus to do this in the upper room? What did it demand of him to wash the disciples' feet? Because today, in, in our own Christian circles, foot washing doesn't cost a whole lot, except maybe a little bit of awkwardness. In Jesus' day, it was a sacrifice of love. In Jesus' day, it was something that was done to meet a genuine need. So what did it cost Jesus? Well, in the upper room, Jesus had to treat those other men as more significant than himself, even though he, of all people, knew that he is the most significant. Yet he treated them, and it, he had to give up his self-importance and his right to be served in order to serve others. In the upper room, Jesus had to put his comfort on hold to meet the practical needs of men who, at least some of them, neither understood nor appreciated what he was doing for them. And so Jesus gave the, gave the same service that he gave to Judas, who betrayed him. Same service he gave to Peter, who denied him. Same service he gave to John, who stuck with him, even at the foot of the cross. And I think knowing the outcome of those three men and, and the others who were sitting around that table, knowing how it would turn out with them, made that service costly and potentially humiliating. For anyone else who would make that service wildly frustrating, because you don't know what's going to happen once you serve. And will they be receptive? Will they be thankful? Actually, the hard part of this text is not the question of whether we ought to wash feet today. The hard part is figuring out what act of loving service in our own day is as costly as washing feet was in the first century. That's the rub. That's where we have to sit and ponder and try and come up with maybe the best examples that we can find. Maybe this kind of service in the church, one for another, maybe it looks like shoveling the driveway of that older woman in the church that, quite frankly, could probably do it herself if you give her enough time. Maybe it looks like opening your home for hospitality to that couple that you know full well will never repay the kindness. Maybe it means watching children and changing diapers and sweeping the floor for a couple that can't afford to pay a babysitter. Maybe, fathers, it means putting your family's spiritual needs ahead of your own hang-ups and your insecurities and the awkwardness of leading family worship because you know that's how you need to serve where the Lord has called you. Maybe it means being slow to anger and quick to forgive even the sins that make us look foolish in public. I'll be the first one to tell you that all of those examples, when we compare them to foot washing in the first century, all of those examples seem pretty anemic. Which ought to tell us something. I think it ought to tell us that there is no service so low that we should feel too proud to accomplish for one another in the church because of the love that has been poured into our hearts through Christ. That's the point of verse 16, you know. Christ's service has become our example, and so in love we must serve one another, and in humility we must follow our Savior. A servant will never become greater than his master. One who sent will never be above the one who sent him. And if Jesus, our Lord, stooped low enough to serve you through his sacrifice, that ought to change more than just what you understand. That ought to change what you do. 
So Jesus says in verse 17, if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And we could also assert the opposite as well. If you know these things, cursed are you if you refuse to do them. J.C. Ryle says that knowledge without practice is the character of the devil. No one knows more truth and no one do does more evil than he. And so the principle of this verse is very simple. No one in the church has a right to act like they are more important than Jesus was. If our Lord and teacher is willing to become a servant, then those who have been taught by him ought to be willing to become servants too. And so this is how this word applies to everyone sitting in this room. Every member of Christ's church, Christ's service, has become our example. But especially today, as we look to ordaining and setting apart men in this church for ordained service, we need to apply it one step further. It's true that Christ makes all his servants servants of one another, but Christ's officers especially ought to be examples of following Christ's example. It's worth noticing, I think, the men who were sitting with Jesus in that upper room. But with the exception of Judas, these were all men who would become shepherds of God's flock, of Christ's flock, when he was gone. These are men who were handpicked to lead the church. They're the men who would decide the controversies of the faith in the first century. They were the men who would see to it that the gospel would go out, that it would flourish and bear fruit in the lives of God's people. These were men who spoke living oracles of the word of God. These are men who walked with Christ and saw him crucified and saw him raised and became the first person witnesses to the resurrection. These were, without a doubt, 11 of the most important people, humanly speaking, that have ever served the Church of Christ in history. And it's these men, and these men alone, who received the private lesson on humility and service in the upper room with Jesus. And do you think it was they who received this lesson because it was they who needed to know it the most? Christ left this example for all of us, it's true, but he left this example for us through them. And Jesus stressed this point in the upper room because he knows how it works with fallen people in positions of authority. He knows that the tendency of our heart is to turn leadership into an opportunity for self-serving. He knows that in our sinful core, we all think that we're the most important person in the room at all times. Our schedules revolve around us, our jobs revolve around us, our families revolve around us, and if we're not careful, we can think that the church revolves around us. And it's true for everyone apart from the restraining grace of God and sanctification so that what John wrote in his third letter about Diotrephes could be said about us all, that he loves to put himself first. And if that temptation grips every member of the church, don't you think it also worms its way in and whispers in the ears of the ones that God has called to be leaders in the church? And so we read it earlier, and on the road 
uh, with Jesus, those sons of Zebedee, James and John, come to him and they begin asking questions of reward and importance. What do we get, Jesus, for, for serving with you? What do we get because we're the ones who are walking with you and hearing your words and seeing your miracles? What sets us apart? How will be, we be seen as special? Maybe you could do this. You could, you could reserve your left hand and your right hand seat when you come into your kingdom. Maybe we'll receive a little bit of honor. And then a grumble broke out among the other ten because these two brothers had the gall to ask for what they all secretly wanted for themselves. But perhaps some of them somewhat expected they would receive. And Jesus taught the same message then than he did in the upper room. Jesus called them and he said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. Their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so to Tim, to Landon, to Frank and to Nick. To all the elders and the deacons of Redeemer Church, I say to you that the world has had its fill of leaders who think that leadership makes them entitled. Entitled to power and importance and a forum to pursue their own agendas. It shall not be so among you. Christ has given you an example that you also ought to do to others as he has done to you. If Christ has called you to lead in his church, he has called you to lead through service. He's called you, as he called Timothy, to set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. If he's called you to serve in the church, he's called you to display the love of Christ through the way that you serve God's people and to display it in such a way that we would be more thankful for him than we are of you. And this will only happen if you love Christ first. This will only happen. You can only do it if you know the love that led him to lay down his life for sinners like you. In a little while, Scott is going to be up here, one of our ruling elders, and he's going to give a charge to these new officers. But before that happens, Christ charges all his people. He charges especially the officers that he set apart in the church. Christ has made all of his servants servants of one another. And if you know these things, well, blessed are you if you do them. Please join me in prayer.